When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're going to meet God in the burning bush and also hear about an Episcopalian turned Roman Catholic saint. Amen. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's another place where we miss the old King James, perhaps. Exodus 3 opens with Moses keeping the flock for his father-in-law Jethro, who's the priest of Midian. There's a lot to unpack there. Moses has run for his life after killing an Egyptian who was beating an Israelite man. And word has gotten back to Pharaoh that, excuse me, Moses did this. Did I say Joseph? I get my Egyptian patriarchs mi- mixed up. Um, and he runs for his life. He is uh, exiled, self-exiled from Pharaoh's court. The prince of Egypt now is in the desert. And he marries there. He meets Jethro, the priest of Midian, What is the priest of Midian? He worships the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
They are in somehow um, part of the covenant and yet also not part of the covenant. Uh, Jethro and his family uh, show and demonstrate how God is always working a number of programs and ways of working in the world. We happen to know the one that we know. Um, Just like when you're in a burning building and you see a fire escape, you run out of it. You run out of the first one you see. There may be other fire escapes. Um, Who knows? Who cares? Um, When you're in a burning building, you get out the first fire escape you can find. And so much of our um, covenant with God and our relationship with God through Christianity, through uh, the religion that we inherit from the Old Testament, is, uh, is part of that fire escape that we found on the, in the burning house. There are other programs of God. Jesus made that very clear. Other sheep have I that you do not know of yet. And all through the Old Testament and New Testament, there are these hints of God's working through other means and through other, um, other covenants, other dispensations, however you uh, define those different economies of grace, the way God dispenses grace to people. Uh, we see here in the priest of Midian. Uh, they are not part of the same covenant And yet they are part of the same covenant that Moses and Abram and Isaac and Jacob have with God. Jethro becomes Moses' advisor when he leads the people out of Egypt. Jethro is the one that says Moses needs to appoint 70 elders to hear court cases instead of Moses hearing them all by himself. Uh, Really an amazing process. But this is a step down for Moses. He has lost his privileged position in the court of the Pharaoh. And now, as the King James says, as I alluded to earlier, here's where the King James really captures the moment for Moses. It says, Moses was keeping the flock for his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock, or it says, and the priest of Midian keeping his flock on the backside of the desert. The backside of the desert. I can't think of a better way to say uh, where Moses was. He's not in the front of the desert. He's on the backside of the desert. Um, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in the backside of the desert, um, a place where you don't have the same kind of privileges or power or comforts or all the things that sort of make life tolerable or good that we would say is good. Um, This is not... um, This is a really difficult place for Moses. He is experiencing the the difficult and expensive education of God's program that all of us have to go through one time or another. And if you've ever enrolled in the school, uh, this particular school, you know that it's really hard sometimes and the tuition is really high. For Moses, it's 40 years. He spends 40 years of his life Um, doing this part of it. Uh, That's a long time. That's a lot of graduate degrees, a lot of bachelor degrees, a lot of seminars, a lot of PhDs, a lot of dissertations. It's a lot of education there on the backside of the desert. And these experiences are meant to uh, crystallize what is really important in life. 
If you've ever had an experience of deprivation and loss, we were talking about this in Bible study yesterday, the, the Christian community that is scattered throughout Asia Minor that Peter is writing to. These people have lost their homes. They have lost their farms. They've lost their businesses. And now they're starting over with very little. And if you've ever had that experience, you know that it's in times like that that the things that really matter get crystallized for you, for all of us. Um, what really matters, um, certainly the desert, the backside of the desert experiences can also be health setbacks when we find out that we have joined a club that we did not want to join. Um, we are now um, experiencing some sort of disease or uh, some sort of um, chronic condition or whatever it is that isolates us, that separates us, or is a loss of the good things we had before. And Moses is experiencing this, and this is the moment where he meets God. This is the moment where, while he is busy on the backside of the desert, doing the only thing you can possibly do there, which is tend these flocks as they work their way over the very seemingly barren terrain of the Sinai Peninsula. I don't think the Sinai Peninsula was any more lush or green then than it is now. We would call it a desert. It is deserted of foliage and um, vibrant life. There is life in the desert. There always is. It's, scra- it's, a, it's a scrappy life. It's the kind of grass that can grow from under a rock with very little moisture. Uh, or depending on the rains from the, the spring or winter rains that happen, there in the desert. My experience of the actual desert has been here in the United States and, and in, the, uh, in Kuwait, uh, literal desert there. And stuff does grow there, and people do have you know, animals to graze, but the amount of land you need in a desert environment is vastly different from what you need in a, um, in a place like England or Virginia or somewhere where there's a lot of water flowing, a lot of greenery. So Moses would have covered a lot of ground. And as he's covering this ground with his sheep, as they slowly nibble their way through the backside of the desert, he encounters this bush. It's a, it says that um, the, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. So we have a couple of things happening. We have this angel of the Lord a character that shows up quite often in the Old Testament. Never quite sure who it is. Um, Christians have always seen the angel of the Lord as a Christophany or maybe a theophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, an appearance of God in bodily form in the Old Testament. But it seems like in this case, that is not what's happening quite um, in that Moses can have a little bit of dialogue and look at this angel, unlike God, who is about to appear in a few minutes. Um, but the angel of the Lord is there, and he sees this angel. But the bigger issue that he sees is, um, is this bush that is burning but not consumed. Moses is so bored in the desert uh, he's been out there a long time that he says to himself, as he must have talked to himself a lot out there, 
don't know if you've ever been in a place where you were so alone and so isolated that you talk to yourself. I mean, I, I don't hope I'm not sounding uh, like I'm talking down to anyone here, but Moses did not have any like stuff out there. I know you know this. I'm just repeating it for my own benefit to remember, remind myself. Moses didn't have books, as far as we know. Maybe a few books, maybe something. Who knows? Um, but very little. Uh, he had. He didn't have a, any electronic devices, obviously, or any of the kind of things that we use to distract ourselves. Podcasts, audiobooks. You know, the old, like, I need to find the right podcast to put on so I can take the garbage out, which is like a two-minute thing. But um, my emotional support audiobook, whatever we have to sort of get us through the alone parts of our life, um, Moses really didn't have that. He had the sheep and he had this burning bush that was really something to behold. I, When I was uh, in my 20s, I was part of a... Uh, I was chaperoning a uh, school trip for high school students, and it was a long bus ride, and the bus broke down on the way home. It was like an eight-hour bus ride. And the bus broke down in Virginia, and we were getting the bus fixed, and we had a lot of time at this rest stop gas station. And it was one of the places where through hikers of the Appalachian Trail stopped to resupply. Um, There's a little gazebo there, a Burger King, and like a little convenience store, and they would buy stuff there. And there was a couple of the hikers that had bought like five Whoppers. Like, I'm not kidding, five. And they were like each eating five Whoppers um, there. They were skinny guys. They'd been out in the hiking uh, for a long time. They were hungry. And I remember I was sitting in the gazebo with them, talking to them. And one of the guys said, you know, when you're out on the Appalachian Trail, you become a voracious reader. Like you have to, you just want to read stuff. You'll read every label like 500 times that you have in your pack. If it's a soap label or whatever food label of a box of food or whatever it is, you'll read it like 100 times. If you have a book out there, we'll read it like 500 times, the book. Um, we're just desperate for like anything in that sort of sensory deprivation um, place of just walking in the woods for hours and hours a day. And um, I can, I sort of feel that with Moses. He's like, oh my word, there's a, a burning bush, but there's something about this bush that it, it's burning, but it's not consumed. And here we see an insight into God, what God is like. God is burning, but is not consumed. Um, if you think about that, it's kind of like a Zen koan. Um, contemplate the sound of one hand clapping. <clears throat> sort of something that you can't really wrap your mind around, but you see it. And that's what Moses sees. I must turn aside and see this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. Why is this bush not burned up? What is going on with this bush? Um, it's burning and burning and burning and burning, but it doesn't have that natural life cycle of, um, of being consumed, of turning, the fire gets less intense, the branches turn black and then white with ash, and then, you know, they kind of just goes out. There's nothing else to burn. Well, that's not happening. Here we see an insight into what God is like. 
or who God is even. God is outside of time and yet inside time. However you slice it, however you see God and time in relationship, you'll have to come up with some kind of weird things about your own time. God is the creator of time. This is what happens in the story in Genesis. God creates time when he says, let there be light. And when he divides the day from the night in Genesis, evening and morning, the first day, here we have the creation of time. Time, this thing that is linear, it moves in one direction at the same speed for everybody, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are all moving through time together, and yet we are not moving through time together. Uh, you listening to me talk can be a really boring experience, and it seems like it goes on forever, and you check your watch. It's like, no, it feels like it's been two hours, um, a boring sermon. Or if you're watching a really great show and it's like, oh my word, that episode was over in an hour or it seemed like five minutes. Or you hear Michael Curry preach, our presiding bishop. And you say, wow, that was a really short sermon. And you look at your watch and he just preached for 45 minutes. Um, time is relative. It is extremely relative in how we experience it. And yet it is a very linear thing. And it moves at the same pace. If you have a clock and you both watch the clock, it's moving at the same time. And God is somehow in time with us, but also outside of time as well. And that that relationship is one that theologians often probe and think about and talk about. Is human existence like the parade, where there's a long parade through New York City, there's a front of the parade, there's a back of the parade, and you're in the parade holding one of the ropes of Charlie Brown, the, the float or blimp of Charlie Brown, and what do they call those? Inflatable Charlie Brown, and you're holding the rope, moving through the parade. But God is like a spectator up on a high skyscraper looking down. God can see the whole parade. God could parachute down into parts of the parade if God wanted to. Um, maybe that's how time works for God. Hard to know. All miracles are basically an intervention in the speed of time. Uh, If you look at uh, the water-to-wine miracle of the wedding of Cana of Galilee, Jesus turns water into wine, and water is being turned into wine all over the world every day. Um, Water comes out of the sky in rain. It waters the earth. Um, You plant a seed of a grape. The seed germinates, and water feeds it. And the soil feeds it and it grows and eventually become, and then, you know, as it grows, there's water going through the um, plant, the vine, and feeding the grape and growing the grape. And then you take the grape and you crush it and you, you know, water is being turned to wine. It just takes a long time. Jesus turns water into wine instantly in those foot washing pots. And um, we call that a miracle, the speeding up of time. Um, Ultimately, that is what is happening in a lot of miracles. There's probably exceptions to that, of course. But here we see in the burning bush this suspension of time. Time is standing still. God can do that. God does it in a battle with Joshua later, Moses' successor, where the sun stands still in the sky and they have more time to defeat their enemies before the battle ends at nightfall. God certainly can do stuff with time. And I think this has a huge implication for healing. 
Moses is a wounded person. Uh, He has lost so much. And he lost it from basically what is an accidental killing. It doesn't seem like he meant to kill the Egyptian. He just hit him. He just struck him. He wanted him to stop hitting the Israelite enslaved person. Um, And he strikes him and kills him. Then he hides the body. He's ashamed of what he did. If it had been justice, um, he might not have been ashamed of it. Hard to say what is happening there. But Moses is a wounded person. He is hiding out on the backside of the desert. He's lost everything. And here, the opportunity is presented to him to buy back the time of his life, to see a vision of God that is outside of time, that maybe God was working through the stuff that Moses can't imagine God could work through, and that is the past. Can God really work in your past, even now in the present? I think so. When you experience healing from past wounds and trauma and setbacks and all the things that have turned your life upside down or just knocked you around a little bit, all those places, things that have sent you to the backside of the desert, um, God can work in the past as well as in the future and in the present, outside of time and in time. And we have to trust God for that. God can heal stuff from the past. Doesn't happen always right away, but that is what we hope for in healing. <clears throat> Doesn't mean it all goes away or it is taken away and we don't remember it. Um, ultimately, healing can happen even for the past. And I think that burning bush is a symbol for Moses of that possibility for him. Because what God is going to call him to do is to go back in time, to go relive a part of his life, but in a very different way back in Egypt. God calls him by name. Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. This is the response to God. This is what we say in worship. Every time we worship, we just say, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. We don't know why God calls us. We don't know why we are part of his covenant and plan. Um, But ultimately, our answer is, here I am. That's our only answer. In fact, we know that if God is calling us, it's not because of some intrinsic uh, high value, skill value we have or some, you know, thing or quality that we think is really impressive or something like that. It is just because we are loved. That's why God calls us, because we are loved. God wants a relationship with us. Moses, Moses, here I am. Then come no closer. He removes his sandals. We ought to take our shoes off in church more often. We don't. Lots of religions do. Um, But this is where that holy ground comes from. The, the, The voice from the bush identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of your father, too, um, Amram, who is Moses' father, um, and maybe even maybe even Pharaoh, too, who is also a father to Joseph. Hard to say. But he takes his sandals off. Moses hides his face. He's afraid of God. <clears throat> and then God says, you know, Moses, this really isn't about you. This is about the cries of my people that are going up and I hear every single day. 
Does God hear the cries of God's people? Does God hear your cries? Does God hear your tears? Yes. Yes. That's what he's saying here. So I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh. And then, of course, Moses says, who? Who should I say to Pharaoh that what God has sent me? Who has sent me to deliver these people? And this is where God reveals his divine name. When you come to Pharaoh, um, God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is the tetragrammaton or the four letters, a tetrapack, if you know what that is. Um, the tetragrammaton, the four letters, <coughs> excuse me, four Hebrew consonants. The vowels are not there in the original Hebrew manuscripts. Vowels in Hebrew are added much later, A, I, E, O, and U, and sometimes Y. But um, these four letters are the name of God, a name that is used all throughout the Bible, even in the beginning of the Bible, before God reveals his name to Moses. Um, in the English, in English Bibles, it is usually translated L-O-R-D, capital letters, in the, um, in, um, <clears throat> in the prayer book, you only see the name Yahweh a couple times when it specifically refers to the name of God in the Psalms and some of the canticles. But um, n- normally we translate it Lord, L-O-R-D, capital. Um, but this is the name of God. Uh, if you take the vowels for Adonai, another name of God, and as Masoret scholars, di- scribes did, and transfer them to the tetragrammaton, to Yahweh, or to, um, to this divine four letters of the name of God, you get the, the name Jehovah um, that sort of comes out of this Yahweh with the vowels from the, the word, the God name Adonai, which is also in the Bible. Adonai means sir or Lord or master. doesn't always mean God. Sarah famously calls Abraham Adonai, Lord, um, and it's sort of a term of respect. But um, here it is, um, it is this divine name, Yahweh. Um, and this is the name of the God that is going to lead them out of, out of Egypt. God is personal. God is not abstract. Um, even though abstractions of God help us through difficult times sometimes, um, ultimately, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has a name and wants to know us and wants to know our name and knows our name um, even before we know God's. So a lot of mystery surrounding the name of God. But I think the important thing is that this name is supposed to empower us. It was supposed to empower Moses to do something really difficult. What difficult task are you facing today? What difficult conversation are you facing and delaying? What small task are you putting off? Whatever it is, um, use the divine name for courage that God has sent me to do this. God has empowered me to do this. The Yahweh has told me to do this, needs me to do this for, for him. Um, I think that's a good way to go about some really difficult things sometimes. Not that we are always going to be right just because God told us to do something. Moses famously screws up 
the Exodus a number of times. In spite of his mistakes, God still delivers God's people. Just because we're doing something for God or God has called us to something doesn't mean that we're going to do it right or perfectly or anything like that. Um, just what it means is we, we try it and we listen and we obey. So I hope you can do that today with that difficult thing that you have, um, to just do one thing in the name of God today. Amen. Art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Elizabeth Ann Seaton. She is the founder of the American Sisters of Charity, also known as the Daughters of Charity. She was born in New York City on August 28th, 1774, so just a year before the American Revolution. Um, She was born in New York City in 1774. She's the founder of the Sisters of Charity, the first community of nuns and sisters established in the United States. She was reared in the Episcopal Church, her family having been loyalists, loyal to England during the American Revolution. From a young age, she desired to aid the sick and poor. In 1795, she married William Seaton, and their family eventually came to include five children. Um, during this time, she founded the Society for the Relief of Poor Widows with Small Children. Um, she was born into a life of great privilege, um, and then married into even bigger privilege um, of wealth in New York City in this time when the city was very small. Alexander Hamilton was was there setting up uh, the bank account for Trinity Wall Street, putting $5,000 into that bank account, which is now worth about $21 billion, I think. So if you invest, the best way investment advice I have for each of you is to invest $5,000 $5,000 in 1810, and it'll be a lot of money today. That's the only advice I'll ever give about investments. Um, but uh, in this time, she met a young priest named John Hobart, John Henry Hobart, who was very energetic and, you know, into church and building churches and growing churches in this rapidly expanding city, reaching out to the poor. This is when a huge wave of immigrants are coming from Europe with very little, and um, the widows and orphans of those um, immigrants are really, really destitute. There are no social programs. There is no government assistance for any of these um, very desperately poor people. And Elizabeth Ann Seton steps in um, with the help of John Henry Hobart, this young priest who um, eventually becomes the Bishop of New York City and the Bishop of New York. But in this time, he's just a young guy. And they have a lot of theological conversations, a lot of theological conversations. 
this is where Elizabeth Seton um, really comes into her own as a theologian um, through these conversations of, about theology and God and the church. Well, in 1801, her family, the family business of her husband goes bankrupt, and her husband contracts tuberculosis, which is pretty much an incurable disease. The only thing that you could do for tuberculosis in that time period was to go somewhere warm. This is why, um, is it Percy Bryce Shelley, who dies at a very young age of tuberculosis, dies in the city of Rome, Um, because that's where a lot of people went. They went to Italy uh, for the warm climate. This is before people went to Florida. There was too many mosquitoes there. But in those days, these kind of wealthy but formerly wealthy families were able to, I guess, go to Italy somehow and live there. Um, he goes there with the family, the five kids and Elizabeth. Um, <clears throat> when they get there, the Italian authorities quarantine them for yellow fever. They are quarantined in a cold stone hospital with no warmth, a hospital for the dying. Um, and William soon dies of tuberculosis there in that very cold winter hospital. He leaves Elizabeth as a young widow with five children and few resources. While she's struggling with these losses there in Italy with five kids, she was befriended by Roman Catholics and as a result became a Roman Catholic. She came back to New York and encountered bitter opposition from her Episcopalian family for her new religious leanings. Um, Whenever you set out into a new religion or whatever it is, I think most of us will find Uh, a lot of responses from family members. With her, um, as she goes back to New York, she has five children, obviously, and is in more desperate financial straits. There in New York, she turns to Roman Catholic clergy for support in 1805, um, she formally becomes a member of the Roman Catholic Church, which may have involved baptism at that point. I'm not sure. Rebaptism, or whatever you call it. In 1806, she met Father Louis Duborg, who, was, who wanted to start a congregation of religious women or women religious nuns, patterned after the French Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul. In 1809, Elizabeth took vows and became Mother Seton, to a small community of seven women known as the Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph, dedicated to teaching. The sisters were given land in rural Maryland, and in 1810 they opened St. Joseph's Free School to educate needy girls. The sisters intertwined social ministry, education, and religious formation in all their varied works. Seton dispatched sisters to operate orphanages in Philadelphia and New York City. Out of the pioneering work of Elizabeth Seton, Five independent communities of the Sisters of Charity now exist, offering ministry and care for the most vulnerable. Elizabeth remained the mother of the Sisters of Charity until her death on January 4th, 1821. The Daughters of Charity, one of the organizations that came out of her work, um, came to Austin in the late 1800s. Austin was a very small city at that time. Pflugerville, when they came, was here. It was a place, a city, a small town. Um, I think about 300 people lived here or less. might have been much less. I'm not sure. 
But um, the Daughters of Charity came to Austin and set up a hospital there in west of the University of Texas. Um, It was called the Dying Hospital or the Death Hospital um, because it was basically a hospice. Most hospitals in that time period were not necessarily places of healing. They were places of caring for dying people, um, chronic and um, diseases and other very serious illnesses that would put a person where they needed full-time medical care, which often resulted in death. And so um, hospitals today are a lot of things, but back then they were mainly really what we would call hospices. And that was what they came to do. Um, And so the residents of Austin, who are largely Protestant at the time, um, really kind of looked down on their work uh, with pejoratives and things like that. But ultimately, they're still here. Um, and even though they were bought out by Ascension a few years ago, um, the, the work of Elizabeth Ann Seton is still happening here in our local area now with much more, many more locations. If you go to most of the Seton hospitals, you will see the story of her life, and they usually mention her Episcopalian um, roots, um, mention her, her, um, her conversations with John Henry Hobart, and others that um, were the foundation of her faith there in um, that place. So we pray, Holy God, you blessed Elizabeth Seton with your grace as wife, mother, educator, and founder, that she might spend her life in service to your people. Help us by her example to express, express our love for you in the lives of others. Through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. God, you've given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplication to you. And you have promised through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will be in the midst of them. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth. In the age to come, life everlasting. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God.